My name is Malcolm Duncan. If you're joining live on the uh, Facebook stream, thanks so much for joining us. Or if you're here as a guest, thank you for taking the time on uh, a Sunday night to be with us. I really appreciate it. We live in an age when everyone feels they have the right to be right. We live in a society where religious and philosophical truth has been placed in a relativistic camp. You can believe what you like and how you like because we believe what we believe is our business and no one else's. We live in a pluralistic culture where every faith vies for its space and its voice. You can have a private faith, but it must never, ever, ever make its way into the public square. It mustn't shape the way you look at the world. It mustn't shape how you engage in debates about society or politics or education or what makes for a healthy community or a healthy family. You can have your faith, just keep it to yourself. And there's an apparent niceness about that. There's a, a comfortableness about it. We all get to muddle along nicely with one another. After all, it is true, isn't it, that all roads lead to the same God in the end. That kind of argument it's supposed to help us to be more harmonious, more kind, more compassionate, and more inclusive. But when you read the Bible, you discover that there's a challenge to that notion again and again and again. I'd like you to turn with me, if you have a Bible with you, either turn it on or find in it uh, the fourth book in the New Testament. It's called a gospel because it's full of good news. That's what and the word gospel means. I wonder, could you just turn my gain down a little bit? And we're going to read from the end of the, well, from chapter 14 of John's gospel. The first half of John's gospel, chapters 1 through to 12, deal with three and a half years of Jesus Christ's ministry. Christians believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he was fully divine and fully human. The second half of John's gospel deals with one week, seven days, of Jesus' life and ministry. It's remarkable that so much time is given to seven days. It's as if the writer, John, slows everything down so that you can hear as many words as possible. He invites you into the story. And Jesus is preparing his friends, his disciples, for the worst event of their life. He's going to be killed. He wants them to be comforted and given strength and hope and something to cling to in the midst of all of the uncertainty that they will face as Jerusalem turns against them and he is murdered on a cross. So he tells them that he wants them to trust him. We pick up the story in John chapter 14. We're going to read the first 14 verses. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so... Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. 
Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father? And the Father is in me. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own. But the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. But if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And in fact, will do greater works than these. Because I'm going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it. Amen. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. It is to verse 6 that I want to draw your attention as we continue our Sunday evenings exploring where's God. By tonight looking at the question, where's God if I'm not a Christian? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The apparent beauty of all roads leading to God, of everybody believing the same thing, quickly collapses if you think about it for a few moments. Take, for example, the three great monotheistic faiths of the world, Islam, Christianity, and Judaism. It is true that they all have their roots in Abraham. And it is true that many within the Islamic community are searching for God and use a name to describe him, which in Arabic and Aramaic sounds very like the name that um, Jesus would have used. However, when you explore the ideas that sit particularly within Islam and within Christianity, but also within Judaism and within Christianity, you quickly realize that there are contradictions that there are philosophical statements about who God is and what he does that seem to contradict one another. Judaism can't acknowledge that God has a son. Christianity believes that he does in Jesus Christ. Islam believes that there is only one God and his name is Allah. Christianity doesn't believe that God only exists in one expression. It believes that God exists in three expressions, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But I'm guessing most of you this evening here are not Jews or are, and are not Muslims, although there may be some. I'll return to that in a moment because I want to use it as an example. It's more concerning that in a culture like Northern Ireland, there are contradictory ideas of God in modern culture. The illogicality of contradictory statements has to be named rather than just allowed to exist somewhere. There is no God versus there is a God. God is cruel versus God is good. God is kind versus God is unkind. God is present versus God is absent. God is love versus God is non-existent. Those two statements can't exist 
all of them in contradistinction to one another. One has to be more right than the other. And although it's awkward and difficult and challenging to have conversations about those contradictions, if we're going to be intellectually and philosophically robust, we need to somehow find a space to have them. I want to suggest that church is a good place to have conversations like that. Let me focus for a moment as an example with you on the Islamic claim of who God is. A Muslim's holy book is called the Quran. And in uh, their chapters, it's called, they're called surahs, in chap- surah 29:46, This is how the Quran describes Allah talking to Christians and Jews. Our God and your God are one. So the claim lies within the Islamic holy text that the God that Muslims worship is exactly the same God as the God of the Jews and the God of the Christians. The names Allah and Al-Rahman are evidently words that were used to describe God uh, before Islam began by Jews and by Christians in different contexts. And in Surah, chapter, Surah 5, verses 17 to 18, it criticizes Christians for identifying Allah with Christ and both Christians and Jews for calling themselves children of Allah. But the problem is within Islamic faith, as I said a moment or two ago, Allah is not a trinity of three persons and he has no son who was incarnate or made flesh as a human being. Let me read you something from another chapter, Surah 112. And nearly every chapter in the Quran begins with these words, by the way. In the name of God, the merciful and the compassionate. Islam has 99 names for God, but all of them are descriptions. None of them are names. He only has one name, Allah. Surah 112 says, Say, O Muhammad, he is God, the one God, the everlasting refuge, who has not begotten nor has been begotten, and equal to him is not anyone. Surah 23, verse 91, God has not taken to himself any son, nor is there any God with him. For then each God would have taken of that which he created, and some of them would have risen up over others. Surah 21, verse 22, and why were there gods in earth and heaven other than God? They, heaven and earth, would surely go to ruin. That's a direct contradiction with the revelation and teaching of the Bible. So as an example, I'm not going to focus on Islamic faith this evening because it's not the challenge that many of you are facing. But those truths articulated within the holy book of the Quran cannot match, cannot be true at the same time as the following truths. John chapter 14 verse 6 in the New Testament, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God except through me. John chapter 3, verse 16. God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life because God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. The Apostle Peter, there is no other name given amongst people under heaven by which we can be saved 
than the name of Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, the Apostle Paul writing to a church in Asia Minor. The fullness of the Godhead bodily dwells in him. Talking about Jesus Christ. Those statements cannot be true at the same time as the other statements that I read to you a moment or two ago can be true. You would accept with me, I hope, the two statements that are opposite about a proposition that are in direct contradiction to one another cannot both be true when they are disputing the very reality that they are seeking to describe. God cannot not be and be at the same time. Evil can't be good and good can't be evil. Right can't be wrong and wrong can't be right. There has to be some way of having a conversation about all of these things. There are different ways of understanding God or his non-existence in the world. And I'm guessing some of you here this evening are watching online or who will watch this video at another point will fall into one of these camps. There is the atheist from a Greek word that means there is no God. Doesn't believe in any existence of any divinity of any kind. Not a divinity, not any divinity. Not any divine beings. There is the agnostic that comes from a Greek word that means um, to be um, open to or, or um, open to persuasion or open to belief or open to knowledge. Not to have any knowledge. To be ready to be persuaded. I wonder if you're an atheist watching online or here this evening. You don't believe in any God. Or are you an agnostic? You're open. But nobody's persuaded you. Nobody's convinced you. Nobody's helped you to see that this all works. Then there is a deist who believes in lots of different kinds of God, whatever way they operate and work and function. And lots could exist all at one time. Early Christianity existed in a context where deism was all around them. Let me tell you one short story about that. A couple of folk from our church family just returned from Rome. If you went to Rome tonight, there's a, a building in Rome which is called the, used to be called the Pantheon. And in it, there are 365 little alcoves. And it was a temple to all of the gods of the Roman Empire. In the second and the third centuries, the Romans were becoming more and more perplexed and anxious about Christianity, which isn't the deist religion. I'll explain what it is in a minute. And they went to the leaders of the church in Rome and they said, there is one empty alcove. We'll give it to you. Put a statue of your Jesus in the alcove and we can worship him alongside the other 364 uh, icons and uh, statues that we have in the temple. The early Christians said, no thanks. This is a Northern Ireland version of the story. The early Christians said, no thanks. We're not deists. We don't believe in many gods. We don't believe in a plethora of expressions of divinity. We don't have the conviction that there are lots of different ways of coming to God. We believe there's only one God who has revealed himself uniquely and powerfully through his son, Jesus Christ. So we won't put his statue in along the other side, the other 364. Thank you very much. They got murdered for that, by the way. Torched. Set on stumps. Covered in tar. Used as street lighting. But they refused. And not very long thereafter, the temple that was called the Pantheon closed. And the idols were removed. And it was consecrated as a church of Christian worship. 
for the only true God. And it's still there today. No, Christians aren't deists. Christians are theists. That means we believe in a unique and clear revelation of who God is and what he has done. But you could be a theist and believe in a different kind of God. Islam is a theistic religion. Judaism is a theistic religion. Some would argue um, that Sikhism is a theistic religion. And then there are lapsed believers. Folk that used to believe. But life hit a hard blow. God disappointed you. He didn't answer your prayer the way you wanted him to. He didn't intervene the way you thought he should have. He didn't live up to your expectations. He didn't prove himself to you. And you might be watching online or here tonight and not sure. You're not so much an atheist or an agnostic. You've lost your way. You're trying to find your way back. You care about these things, but you need somebody to help you. Several years ago, I... um, appeared on a BBC Radio 4 program. I've done it a number of times. It's called The Moral Maze. And it has um, four guests that um, interrogate one another uh, with, a, with Michael Burke, the journalist, um, as the uh, chairman. And they wanted to explore the question of spirituality. There were a number of people on there that um, were arguing with me, one arguing on my side, two arguing against me. The one that was on my side is a, um, a columnist called Melanie Phillips. She's a Jewish lady, and she used to write for The Guardian. Now she writes for The Daily Mail. Quite a switch, but that's another story. The two people on the other side of the discussion were um, a man called Michael Rose, who is a um, leading uh, neurologist, and um, a lady called Claire, I cannot remember her surname. And she was the leader of the Humanist Society. And the discussion that we were having was, is there a God? And of course I and Melanie Phillips said, yes, we believe there is one. And the others were saying, no, we don't believe there is one. And they were getting tied up in knots about language of spirituality and religiosity and everything else. But in the end, they got really, 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 really cross with me because I I kept asking one simple question. You've heard me mention it if you come to this church regularly not so long ago. Where did you come from? Where did you come from? And of course the answers came as they would normally come. I came from from a big bang. I came from a, a sudden incident that happened millions of years. You get there within about three, four, five questions of keeping asking the same question. Where did you come from? got to that point, and my simple question was, well, where did that come from? Now, you might think that's an incredibly simplistic question, but it's a profoundly important one. I want to ask you a question for a moment. Uh, Davy, Pastor Davy, imagine that I was to uh, take this book, and I was to take all the letters out of it and put them into a bucket if I could do that, and then throw them up into the air and let them land, and they landed like this book, not on these pages obviously, but the words and the sentences and the paragraphs and the chapters and the descriptions, what would your response to that be? You'd think that's ridiculous, would you not? 
Every book has an author. Somebody who has a, an intention to tell a story, to reveal something, to explain something that they put down into words, either in an audio book or a written book. One of the clear and wonderful descriptions um, since the discovery of DNA, of that matter, that stuff that makes up your humanity, stuff that if it was stretched, by the way, would reach from here to the moon and back several thousand times. One of the wonderful ways that scientists now describe it is this. Listen, I'm like, give me the cricket. Come here, there's more. Do you know how they describe it? The book of life. So who wrote it? Who took millions and millions and millions of compilations, billions of possibilities, and constructed it so that you are who you are? So that your hair color is the color that it is. So that your size, notwithstanding the occasional KFC or kebab, is as it is. Where did it come from? I don't ask you that to prove a Christian God, because that wouldn't prove a Christian God. I ask you that so that I can say to you, it is more plausible, it is more rational, it is more philosophically viable, it is more intellectually robust to believe that someone did it than to believe that nothing did it. In the early noughties, the famous um, professor Richard Dawkins appeared on a television program in the United States where he made this remarkable postulation. The reality is that we came from nothing. Nothing created something. Nothing can't create something. Something has to create something. Something cannot come from nothing. And in the end, not that I'm asking you to believe in the same God as me yet, although I am, but in a different moment. What I'm asking you now to think about is the simple philosophical and intellectual robustness of a position that says, something made me. Someone is behind my design. I'm not getting to the point of explaining who the someone is or what the something is. I'm just saying it's a reasonable philosophical position to say that something created me and created the whole of the planet because nothing cannot create something. Many people are searching for God and they have reached wrong conclusions about who he is and what he's like partly because many Christians are afraid of having the conversation and partly because we don't feel equipped to have the conversation. And partly because Christians end up sounding very angry with people who don't believe in God. Very aggressive towards them as if they're somehow naughty school children that need to sit up straight and fold their arms and listen. And if they behave properly and listen properly, then they'll be in a better position. I guess that's less likely if you came from a position where you didn't believe in God. And then you believed in him. I want to say to the atheist, what God do you not believe in? You said to me this evening, I don't believe in God. 
Well, what God do you not believe in? I haven't even begun to describe what I think he's like. Maybe I don't believe in that God either. (laughs) Maybe Christianity doesn't believe in that kind of God. I don't believe in a cruel God, nor do I. I don't believe in a spiteful God, nor do I. I don't believe in a resentful God, nor do I. We're getting somewhere with this conversation. To start by saying I don't believe in God presupposes you've already figured out the kind of God that you don't believe in. So let's have a conversation about what God might be like and then make the decision rather than make the decision before hearing any descriptions of his character or his behavior. I want you to turn for a moment with me in your Bible again to a book in the New Testament called the book of Acts. It tells the story of the early church. Acts chapter 17. Paul, a man who had been a Jew and become a Jewish follower of Jesus Christ, he never gave up his Judaism, but he became what is now described as a Messianic Jew, came to believe that the God who had come to earth in Jesus Christ had fulfilled all of the scriptural promises of hope and restoration and saving that the Jewish people were holding on to. But he went to a place called um, Athens, and he went in Athens to a a place called um, Mars Hill. And Mars Hill was a a debating room. It was an outside amphitheater where people got together to talk about ideas, like TED Talks, but outside with no electronics. And um, there, when he got there, he discovered that there was um, lots of conversations going on from different philosophies. People called Stoics and Epicureans. doesn't matter really what they were called. They were just lots of different people with different ideas, arguing about what was real and what wasn't. Could have been the British Parliament in one sense. But in the middle of this great space, there is something that he discovers. And it's an altar to the unknown God. We pick up the story in verse 16 of chapter 17. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Also some Epicureans and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was telling them the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and asked him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? It sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found amongst them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. Now listen to this. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him. Though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. 
For we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought to think that the deity is like gold. We ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed, but others said, we will hear you again about this. At that point, Paul left them. But some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with him. Wow! He walks into this bullpit of ideas and arguments and he sees an altar, maybe it was a stone or a plaque, to the unknown God. Many evangelicals, if they walked into that place and were asked to say something, would say, this is idolatrous, take it away. You're all barking up the wrong tree, you're terrible people. Paul walks into a room where they're trying to work out who God is and he says, I see you've got an altar. Let me explain this unknown God to you. He has a character and a personality and an intention and a desire and a will. And he made everything in the world, including you. And he's made a way for the world to know him. And people have been groping about trying to find him since people were began right from the first ancestor. Because he placed in them an innate desire to discover something, to worship someone. And they've got it wrong here, there, and everywhere. But he has revealed himself finally and fully through one man who died and proved that he was sent from God by rising from the dead. His name is Jesus Christ, by the way. Now, of course, some laughed at him. Some said he was bonkers. Some described him as a babbler. Some heard the resurrection and uh, talk about resurrection and started to giggle. But some believed The church in Northern Ireland, the church in Europe, has become so worried about the people that will giggle at us that we've lost the ability to proclaim with confidence the resurrection. Giggle away. Laugh at me as much as you like. I won't be remotely offended. But if you are searching for God, whatever stream you find yourself in, Muslims that describe the God that they're looking for as Allah, Zoroastrians, Baha'i, atheists, people looking for something. Here is the confident and humble, and I understand it could sound arrogant claim of Jesus Christ. God has revealed himself. He's answered the question. He's come to us. Paul's words in Acts 17, 23, I think are so profound. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Wow! The title of tonight's sermon is Where's God if I'm not a Christian? Uniquely and clearly revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ in contradistinction to every other religious claim on the planet. If you want to know what God is like, you will see him in Jesus Christ. If you want to know what his character is, he has revealed his character in Jesus Christ. 
If you want to know how kind he is, look at how Jesus treats failures and sinners and broken people. If you want to know how inclusive he is, look at how Jesus chases after women and children and Samaritans and people that are laughed at by religious society. At the heart of Christianity is the conviction that God has revealed himself and explained how he has revealed himself through the Bible. And Christianity believes that Jesus Christ is the pinnacle of the revelation of God. That God has come to us and shown us what he is like in Jesus Christ. That he has made a way for us to know him in Jesus Christ. That he has dealt with the separation in Jesus Christ. That he has taken our brokenness in Jesus Christ. That he offers us new life in Jesus Christ. That no one is excluded from the offer. Everybody has a hand extended toward them. That God stands in every meeting, in every gathering, in every day of every year, of every century since time began. And offers life and hope and grace and a new beginning to anyone that will take his hand. But you get to choose. You get to decide. The Bible describes Jesus Christ as our prophet, our priest, and our king. He is the one that tells us what God is like. He is the one that brings us to God. He is the one that brings God to us. He is the one that reigns and rules over us. John, trying to get these words in the right order, writing as um, perhaps a man in his 30s or 40s by the time he wrote his gospel, was grappling with it, and he was writing to a Greek audience. And he begins his gospel by using a creation story, but with a different subject. And he says, in the beginning, and the word that he uses is logos, not lego, logos. In the beginning was the reason behind all things, was the thing that held all things together, that sustained all things. That's what the word logos means. In the beginning was this supreme and authoritative force that holds life itself in tension. Without him, nothing was made that has been made, and in him, everything was made that has been made, and in him was life and light. And then a few verses later, he says this, and that reason, that force, that power, became flesh and blood and lived amongst us. And a few verses later he says it's Jesus Christ. He's the one that holds life together. He's not just a good idea. He's the one that holds everything together. But if you jump forward to the end of the Bible, he's described again by the same man in Revelation chapter 1. He picks up images from a book in the Old Testament called Daniel, where he describes himself, John describes himself as being exiled because of his faith in Jesus Christ to an island called Patmos in the Mediterranean. And he was abandoned and lying or staying there all alone. And he has a revelation. God meets him in a person. And he uses images drawn from the book of Daniel. He, he has, this person has eyes of blazing fire and white hair and a sash across his chest. All images that are used by this man, Daniel, oh, um, 400 years, 350 years or so, about 500 years before Jesus was born. But he uses two more, John, in the, book of in the book of Revelation that aren't in Daniel. First of all, he says this figure, who he identifies as Jesus Christ, had coming out of his mouth a sharp two-edged sword. That's not in Daniel. 
And he had in his hands a set of keys. That's not in the book of Daniel. This figure that John identifies as Jesus Christ is the one out of whose mouth comes the good news that you can have life and hope and forgiveness. A good news that will offend some of you if you're not yet Christians. That will offend those that want to turn away from God and reject who he is and dismiss what he wants. But will offer life and cut bad threads to those that are searching for life. And in his hand he holds a set of keys. What are they? John says that this figure says to him, I hold the keys of death and of Hades. The same argument that Paul uses, this man, Jesus, who's been risen from the dead, is vindicated because there's an empty tomb. John says this man can be trusted because he holds the keys of death and Hades and the afterlife. And you know, Christians believe that. That three days after Jesus Christ was butchered, he rose again. And there's an empty tomb. He isn't there. He's alive and everything is changed. And we hold on to it with all of our lives. He's sometimes described as the lamb. Picking up an image from the Old Testament. And this is where I want to stop with you. Because there are certain passages in the Bible that just leave me speechless with hope. Jesus Christ had a cousin called John the Baptist who was baptizing people and pointing to Jesus. And Jesus himself came to be baptized by John. And when John saw him approaching near the Jordan River, in John chapter 1, John looked at him and here's what he said. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Years later, as an old man, John, who wrote Revelation, John, who wrote the gospel, and John, one John wrote a set of general letters. They're called the general epistles of John. And one John chapter two, verses one and two, listen to what John says about Jesus Christ. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, but not for our sins only, also for the sins of the whole world. Not only do Christians believe that God has revealed himself clearly and powerfully through Jesus Christ, which is an amazing reality. We believe that Jesus Christ has dealt with everything in your life and ours that has gone wrong. He has already secured your forgiveness. He has already paid your debt. He's already signed the check. He's already, He's already dealt with it all. Now you need to make a decision about whether or not you will accept the offer of forgiveness that he offers you. And here in this room, all around the world, Jesus Christ stands with outstretched arms and says, will you take the gift of life that I have for you. And if you reject it, then he says, and you will live with the consequences of that rejection. 
The Bible describes those consequences fundamentally as two destinations. Heaven, a place alongside God where you will spend eternity if you have accepted the offer of life. And hell, a place where God is not that you will spend eternity if you refuse his offer of life. It uses various metaphors and images and pictures to describe those two realities. But one of them holds with the lamb idea. In Revelation chapter 13 and Revelation chapter 19, John says this, there is a book and it is called the Lamb's Book of Life. And all who have trusted Christ are in it. And all who have not are not. And whether you enjoy or reject my message this evening is not my responsibility. But I want to look at the camera for a moment and say to every person listening, now or in the future, and there will be thousands that will listen to this message online, and look around this room and say to every one of you, one day you will stand before Almighty God. And he will not ask you how many services you attended. He won't ask you what denomination you were from. He won't ask you what convictions you had. He won't ask you how many pints of Guinness you drank or cigarettes you smoked or how many people you slept with. The one thing that will determine whether you spend eternity with him or without him is what you've done with Jesus Christ. That and that alone will determine your eternal destiny. Nothing else. And if your response to the question, what have I done with Christ, is I've rejected him, then God will not be vindictive. He will simply say to you, then live with your choice. Because it's your choice. And if you've accepted him, he will say, live with your choice. And in the end, I can't make it for you. Where is God if I'm not a Christian? Uniquely and distinctively and powerfully revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you're willing to let him, he will utterly transform your life. And if you don't want him to do that, then with all the grace in the world, you live with the consequences of your choice. Now you must decide. Let's pray together. I'm going to invite you in a moment or two to make a response to what I've said to you tonight, both online and in the room. But before I do that, the worship group led by Kelsey is going to come and help us sing a song. And I want you to think about the words of it. Because in a moment or two, I'm going to ask you, do you want to become a Christian? 
Or do you want to return to Jesus Christ and let him have the reins of your life? And rededicate your life to him. Nothing you've done. Nothing is able to separate you from him if you feel the burning desire to return to him. He offers his hands to every one of us, but I want you to remember who it is that we're singing about. He's not a take it or leave it kind of person. He's the center of the universe. And he knows your name. He knows your thoughts. He knows you. And as we sing this song this evening in worship and in reverence and praise of Almighty God, He's offering you life. Here and across the world, and I want you to take it. Stand with me for a moment as we sing, You Were the Word at the Beginning. What a beautiful name.